0: years of his youth were given greater value, an impartial observer might have set him down as nine-tenths marine, particularly as his strongest emotions had all been known at sea. To be sure, love and an encounter with the law at its most unjust had marked him deeply by land, but these feelings, powerful though they were, couldn't equal those he'd known as a sailor in number or intensity. Quite apart from the extreme perils of storm and shipwreck natural to his calling, he had fought in more great fleet battles and in more single-ship actions than most officers of his time. He had boarded many and many an enemy, and it was at these times that he felt most wholly alive. Ordinarily he wasn't at all aggressive. A cheerful, sanguine, friendly, good-natured creature— "'severe only in the event of bad seamanship. "'But when he was on a Frenchman's deck, "'sword in hand, "'he felt a wild and savage joy, "'a fullness of being like no other. "'And he remembered every detail of blows given or received, "'every detail of the whole engagement, "'with the most vivid clarity. "'In this he was quite unlike his friend Matcherin, who disliked violence, and who took no pleasure in any battle whatsoever. When he was obliged to fight, he did so with a cold efficiency, but never without an apprehension that had continually to be mastered, disliking both the occasion and the recollection of it. Martin, the surgeon's mate, was no berserker either, perhaps in part because he was a clergyman, though unbeneficed, and for this occasion Unreverend too, since he'd left his cloth behind for the voyage, the immensely long voyage, perhaps a circumnavigation, sailing as Maturin's assistant, but quite certainly because he could feel no anger, no fighting anger, until he'd been seriously attacked, and not a very great deal even then, only a wild, indignant sense of defence. Indeed, there were probably as many attitudes towards battle in the ship as there were men, and as many kinds of courage. Yet, though the variation might run from awkward Davis's dark, lethal, subhuman fury to Barrett Bondon's simple delight in the excitement, the immense excitement, there was nobody aboard the surprise who could possibly have been called shy. With very few exceptions, they were all professional fighting seamen. Some had originally come from blue-water privateers, some from inshore smugglers, and some from men-of-war, but they were a hand-picked crew. Because of his peculiar circumstances, Jack Aubrey had had his choice of large numbers, and now they had been together long enough— with a good deal of foul weather and some very hard fighting, to have formed a distinct community with a great sense of their ship and a great pride in her. A somewhat anomalous community, however, in a ship that looked so very like a man of war, for not only did it contain no marines, no uniformed officers and no midshipmen, but people walked about at ease, even with their hands in their pockets. There was a certain amount of laughter in the forecastle, in spite of the parting, and the quartermaster at the con, wiping a tear from his cheek and shaking his grey head, didn't scruple to address Jack directly. "'I shall never see her like again, sir. "'The loveliest young woman in Sholmaston. "'A lovely young woman indeed, Heaven,' said Jack. "'Mrs. Heaven, if I do not mistake.' "'Why, sir, in any manner of speaking?' But some might say more on the porcupine lay the roving line, if you understand me. There's a great deal to be said for porcupines, heaven. Solomon had a thousand, and Solomon knew what a clock it was, I believe. You'll certainly see her again. But the surprise herself was anomalous too. Although she looked so very like a king's ship, she was in fact only a letter of mark. A private man of war licensed to cruise upon the enemy. Yet she was no ordinary letter of mark, either, since government was paying her expenses to go to the South Seas, there to harry the French and American whalers and fur traders, and any enemy warship that might be within her capacity. This would normally have brought her much nearer the status of one of His Majesty's hired vessels, particularly as her people were exempted from impressment, but it so happened that the administration's real aim was to enable Dr. Maturin to look into the possibility of independent states arising in Chile and Peru, of their being helped to arise, thus weakening the Spanish Empire. Since Spain was at this time England's ally, the aim couldn't possibly be avowed, nor the payments, nor indeed anything to do with the whole potentially embarrassing affair. This, however, didn't worry the surprises to the least degree. The hands knew that they had their precious exemption, and that they had succeeded in remaining on the books, the highly selective books, of the most extraordinarily successful privateer afloat, one whose recent list of prizes had enabled even the humblest seamen she carried to play ducks and drakes with gold pieces if they chose. Several of them, and several of their shipmates, had so chosen throughout the unexpectedly long period of refitting before the South American voyage, and they were now paupers once more, though very cheerful paupers, since what had happened before might very well happen again, was almost certain to happen again, and even a short cruise, let alone one into the South Sea, might bring Captain Aubrey back with so many prizes at his tail— that the port of Shelmerston would be choked for the second time. Yet rather more of them, particularly the two and two and a half share hands, had listened to their captain's advice. Captain Aubrey was remarkably good at giving financial advice. He cried up thrift, caution, small returns. The navy five per cents were the very utmost limit of what he would approve. Perpetual vigilance and strict economy. It was known throughout the maritime world that although Lucky Jack Aubrey had quite certainly earned his nickname at sea, making at least three fortunes before the last astonishing stroke, he had also been spectacularly unfortunate by land. At certain periods he had been extravagant, maintaining a racing stable and cutting a figure at brooks. At others he had been credulous, believing in projectors and their schemes, and, generally speaking, disaster had attended upon his undertakings. It was, therefore, perfectly clear to an objective eye that no one had less right to give advice. Yet among seamen, Aubrey's handling of a ship, his behaviour when he brought that ship into action— his list of victories and his list of prizes outweighed a certain want of practical management, and his words, always very kindly intended, always adapted to the means and the understanding of his hearers, had great influence, rather as Tom Cribbs on a point of foreign politics might have done, and some of the surprises, all of them married men with children, retired from the sea, but none except a sailmaker's mate, who was married to the daughter and sole heiress of a carrier, had retired very far. And the seven new inns, or ale-houses, called the Aubrey Arms, and with those arms, as your three sheep's heads erased proper on their signposts, now scattered about the country, were all within easy reach of the strand— and, it must be admitted, of the publican's smuggling brothers, uncles, cousins, nephews, and even god preserve us, grandchildren. Yet the prudent and uxorious amounted to so small a proportion of the frigate's people, that even when they were added to the paupers they hardly took away from the second anomaly, which was that the surprise was also a ship largely filled with men who were sailing away under no compulsion on the part of authority, poverty, or want of employment, men who had considerable sums at home, and who were setting out on this prodigious voyage for something more, something less definite than gain, and more important. With such a multiplicity of characters, the more, was necessarily somewhat shapeless,